Could I encourage you to, to have your Bibles open at, at Galatians chapter 2. We'll be looking particularly at verses 15 to 21 and uh, by God's grace seeking to open that up uh, to you. I should have just said about the, the little uh, handout, uh, there is a verse which is really uh, summarises or draws together uh, what is important for today. Uh, on the inside there are quotes from three different people in relation to uh, this passage and then uh, on the back uh, if you want to follow through it's especially for the younger people but uh, there's no upper age limit really uh, if you want to follow that through you can see the, uh, the points of the sermon and things which are of some importance well let's pray Father in heaven again we thank you that you are a communicating God who comes to us personally through your word and we ask now that as we look at these few verses that you would speak to us individually as well as collectively and bring these truths home to us and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Things had been pretty hot in, uh, in Galatia. Uh, sorry, not Galatia, because he's writing, Paul's writing to the Galatians, but he's writing about a situation in this a city of Antioch, this third largest city in the Roman Empire. And things have been pretty hot in Antioch, and I'm not referring to the weather. I'm referring to the fact that one apostle, Paul, had had to take another apostle, Peter, to task. And he'd had to do that publicly. And in fact, Paul had accused Peter of hypocrisy. And he'd done that publicly. That's not something to cool matters down, is it? You are a Jew, Paul said, yet you live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, Peter. So how is it then that you force Gentiles to follow Jewish customs? What made it worse, of course, was that this had happened after Peter and Paul and others had met in Jerusalem and agreed that Jews and Gentiles were saved in exactly the same way. All that was required by God was repentance from sin and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And whether you were a Jew or a Greek or a male or a female or old or young or sick or well, those things didn't matter. And there was this recognition in saying that, that this was happening by God's grace and only by God's grace that people were saved by faith and only by faith and that that faith was centred in Christ and only in Christ. Well, that's the situation. Things are a bit hot as we come to consider verses 15 to 21 of Galatians chapter 2. Now, in the, the NIV, which is the version we have here in the pews, or if you prefer the New King James, or there are other versions as well, of course, but in those two, Paul continues to take Peter to task. And why do I say that? Well, I say that because English, very usefully, is a language which has quotation marks. And so if you look here, uh, you can see the quotation marks were used, first of all, in verse 14. Paul said, I said to Peter in front of them all, quotation marks, you are a Jew. 
Uh, and then they're used again in verse 15, because again, you're at the beginning there, you can see the quotation marks before we, uh, and they continue on, uh, and they're in verse 17. <coughs> and you, again, you see those little quotation marks there to show that these are words that someone said. Uh, and they, it concludes right at the end of the chapter, at the end of verse 21. All of that's Paul speaking. Well, that's all very well and good, but, you know, New Testament Greek does not have quotation marks. So it's a little bit of an interpretation here by the English translators. It's a legitimate one, but it is an interpretation. Uh, and so there are some versions which actually finish the quotation at the end of verse 14. And so that for 15 through to the end of the chapter uh, is, is not Paul speaking to somebody in particular. Well, you could argue about that uh, for a long, long time. More important than the presence or the absence of quotation marks, of course, is the argument, the reasoning that Paul is using. And I want us to look at it. And again, I could have said here, there, there are the three arguments listed on the inside of there. Three truth statements, if you like. And it's those that I want us to consider Today, The first of those truth statements is this one. We are not, we are not justified by works of the law. We can't come to before God and say, God, look at all the good things I've done. Let me in. We are not justified by works of the law. If you want to get your point across to somebody... It's often useful to repeat it, isn't it? If you want to get your point across to somebody, parents know the truth of that. How many times have I told you to look both ways, to wash your hands, to do your homework first? Teachers know the truth of that. Let's go through that again. Let me hear that one more time. What did we learn yesterday? All sorts of people know that truth. Football, netball, cricket, swimming, coaches of every sort, even preachers. Even preachers. There's the story of the old Negro preacher who said, first I tell them what I'm going to tell them. Then I tell them. And then finally I tell them what I've told them. And... Martin Luther, although he used different words, he seemed to have that idea in mind as well. He said, in relation to this passage in particular, he said, most necessary it is that we should know this article well, teach it unto others and beat it into their heads continually. He actually didn't mean physically beating, but the, the need to, for repetition. And we see that here three times in these seven verses, three times, Paul emphatically declares that we are not justified by works of the law. First time is in verses 15 and 16. We who are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners know that a man is not justified by observing the law. And he could be addressing that to Peter. He could be saying, Peter, you know that. You know that being circumcised and observing the Sabbath and eating only kosher food won't justify you before God. 
Peter, you know that you haven't kept the Ten Commandments, whether we're talking about number one or number ten or any of the others in between. You've not kept any of them perfectly. And Peter, if we Jews have failed, then there's no hope for Gentile sinners, is there? The second time is also in verse 16. By observing the law, no one will be justified. Well, how can Paul state this so categorically? Well, perhaps he had in mind verses like Psalm 143, verse 2, where uh, the psalmist writes, Do not bring your servant into judgment, for no one living is righteous before you. Or perhaps uh, another psalm, Psalm 14, verses 2 and 3, uh, where it says, The Lord looks down on the sons of men to see if there are any who understand and who seek God. All have turned aside. They have together become corrupt. There is no one who does good, not even one. By observing the law, no one will be justified because no one does it fully. And the third time is in verse 21 where Paul says, If righteousness could be gained by the law, Christ died for nothing. Now that's simply another way of saying that no one has attained or ever will attain the 100% pass mark which is required in relation to observance of the law. Now I don't know, it's a long time since I did uh, what was called the leaving certificate batting in those days, but the highest score attainable I understand for the VCE or if you're from New South Wales for the HSC, for some reason is 99.95%. Why not 100%? Well, perhaps it's a recognition that we know that no student can possibly get it all right. But whatever the reason, I mention it simply to make my point, well, well, Paul's point, actually, that righteousness cannot be gained by keeping the law because no one keeps it perfectly. So hypothetically, I want you to repeat after me. So in your mind, repeat after me. We are not justified by works of the law. Okay, where to from here? Well, that brings us, doesn't it, to our second statement. We are justified by faith in Christ. We are justified by faith in Christ. If it was important for Paul to repeatedly declare that we're not justified by works of the law, it was equally important for him to repeatedly declare how we are justified, wasn't it? It's not just any point just telling us the negative. We need to know the positive. So we shouldn't be surprised that, again, Paul repeats himself. And it shouldn't surprise us either that the, the, the two arguments are often there combined together. Uh, the, the we aren't and the we are, we find in the same sentence. The first time that Paul says we are justified by faith in Christ, again, is back in verses 15 and 16. We who are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners know that a man is justified by faith in Christ. Now notice that Paul says that he and Peter and other Jewish Christians know this. Peter knew it, even though he's reneged. 
When he and John were hauled before the Sanhedrin, and we read it in the book of Acts, he declared, Peter declared, salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. And Paul knows it. That's why he's confronted Peter. That's why he's writing this letter. That's why he's making such an issue of it. So the first time there is in verses 15 and 16. The second time is also found in verse 16, where Paul says, So we too have put our faith in Christ Jesus, that we may be justified by faith in Christ. Now we could argue, well, okay, who who does Paul mean by, by we here? Perhaps he's using the word to refer to just Peter himself. Peter, we, Peter, you and I, we've put our faith in Christ Jesus. Or Paul may be using the word we in referring to, say, Barnabas and Titus in himself. So he's saying, look, we who've preached the gospel to you Galatians, we've put our faith in Christ. Or he may be using the word we in actually referring to the Galatians and himself. We, that is you and us together, we've all put our faith in Christ. But again, you see, whichever one he means, it's true in every instance. All those and only those who put their faith in Christ are justified before God. There's a third time that Paul repeats this truth. The life I live in the body, he says in verse 20, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I asked you before to to notice the number of personal pronouns. What about in this, this verse, noticing the number of times the word live or lives is used? Verses 19 and 20. For through the law I died to the law so that I might live for God. I've been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God. And even as we notice uh, the repetition of that word, do you notice how it's connected with faith? The Christian life is a life lived by faith. There is an acrostic definition of faith. Perhaps we should prefer the one in Hebrews chapter 11, but, but there, this one is, is not a bad shorthand way of uh, thinking of faith. Uh, F is forsaking, A is for all, I is for I, T is for take, and H is for him. Forsaking all, I take him. That's what faith, living faith, is about. Forsaking every other means of trying to be in a right relationship with God, whether it was circumcision or baptism or ceremony or tradition or good works or whatever. We could have sung because it would be very true. Nothing in my hands I bring, simply to your cross I cling. That's forsaking all. And taking him. Again, hypothetically, I ask you to repeat after me. We are not justified by works of law. We are justified by faith in Christ. 
And that brings us to the third and final statement, doesn't it? Truth number three, we are indebted to God's grace. We are indebted to God's grace. This time, Paul doesn't actually repeat himself. And I think the reason for that is that verse 20 and verse 21 is really a summary of all that he said. He's told them what he's going to tell them. He tells them what he's telling them. Now he's telling them what he told them. But it's not a mantra. It's not something if you repeat it, you know, and it'll, it'll just come to pass. It's not a repetition of the same words. Yes, he's told them what he's going to tell them. We are not justified by works of law. Yes, he tells them what he's telling them. We are justified by faith in Christ Jesus. And then he tells them what he's told them, but he makes it very personal, doesn't he? We come back to those personal pronouns. I have been crucified with Christ, he says. It's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. We might well ask, how can Paul be so confident, so bold? And we know he's confident, don't we, because of his use of these first-person first person singular pronouns, I and me. But again, I ask, how can he be so confident? And well, the answer has two parts. The first part is faith. Faith. In other words, God said it, I believe it. And the second part is grace. Grace. It is by grace, God's grace, that we are saved through faith. And I'm sure Paul would agree wholeheartedly with Louisa Stead, who wrote, "'Tis so sweet to trust in Jesus, just to take him at his word, just to rest upon his promise, just to know Thus saith the Lord. I think Paul would also agree with Julia Johnston. Uh, these are hymn writers, as you've probably worked out already. Uh, we sang about it last week. Marvellous grace of our loving Lord. Grace that exceeds our sin and our guilt. Or marvellous, infinite, matchless grace. Freely bestowed on all who believe. And when we remember that grace can be defined as God's undeserved mercy, he would agree with Augustus Toplady, who wrote, and again we could have sung, A debtor to mercy alone, of covenant mercy I sing, nor fear with his righteousness on my person as offering to bring. Well, does that mean that, that Christians are simply clones of Christ? Well, no. Well, Paul is not here speaking of a loss of personality when he says, I've been crucified with Christ and so on. He's talking about a renewal of true personality through faith in the Lord Jesus. In other words, without Christ, we are not what we were meant to be. But with Christ, we become what we are meant to be. And of course, that's not denying either that, that Christians have many things in common. As Paul writes elsewhere, there's no difference between Jew and Greek or Gentile. The same Lord is Lord of all and richly blesses all who call on him. 
and other things, of course, that the substantial, significant things Christians have in common. There's one and there's only one Lord. There's one and only one way of salvation. There's one and only one body of Christ. There's one and only one table of the Lord. Let me ask you, do you see yourself as a debtor to God's grace? I mean, Paul declares that there are only two possibilities in regard to being in a right relationship, to being in a right standing with God. We are, we are in an either-or, not a both-and situation. Either you're justified by works, that is, by what you've done, or you're justified by grace, that is, by faith in what Christ has done. So I have to ask you, which is it for you? Which is it for you? What occasioned this letter or, and Paul's reference to it back in the early days of the church was the conflict about the place of circumcision in the life of the Christian. I guess that's not really a question for us very much. But it's not hard to think of, of a number of other types of conflicts that take place in today's Christian world. Whereas, you, to just take the, the argument, you're not really a Christian, it might be said, you may, perhaps you've been told. You're not really a Christian until you've been baptised by immersion. Or you're not really a Christian until you've spoken in tongues. And there could be many variations on that. But they are as wrong as the conflict over circumcision was, aren't they? Equally as wrong. Well, let me conclude. But again, let me conclude with another quotation. I've said that Paul would have agreed with some of those hymn writers. Uh, let me... Uh, say that the Paul, I'm sure, would have been in wholehearted agreement with another statement made not by a hymn writer, but by a man called John Rabbi Duncan. He was a minister in the Free Church of Scotland in the 1800s. And he was called Rabbi Duncan because he taught Hebrew at the Theological College in Edinburgh, and he also worked amongst Jews. So he wasn't really a Jew, but because of his standing and the work that he did, he was called Rabbi Junction. And uh, I think Paul would agree with what Rabbi Duncan said because it's really a restatement of what Paul said and what Paul repeatedly insisted upon. This is what he said. There is nothing but Christ between us and hell. There's nothing but Christ between us and hell. And thanks be to God, we need nothing else. Thanks be to God, we need nothing else. Well, I was going to repeat myself one last time, but I won't, I won't do that. But I hope that by God's grace, that is the statement to which you can say, Amen. And we can all spell the word faith, can't we? But more importantly... Do we, do you personally have faith? Can you say, forsaking all, I take him? 
Let us pray. Father, we come to you thankful for having these truths uh, repeatedly brought to our attention by the Apostle. Lord, indeed, uh, put it into our hearts and minds to know that uh, we are not justified by works of law, by anything that we think we can do. Bring it again and again to our minds that we are justified by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And bring it to our minds again and again also that if we have that faith in the Lord Jesus, it's because of your grace extended to us. Oh Lord, bring these truths home to us. Keep them in our hearts and minds and help us to dwell upon them and rejoice in them and to be true for each one of us personally. In Jesus' name, amen.